Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to this episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to share a few things with you. The December and last Dr. GPCR newsletter of 2020 is now available. If you haven't subscribed yet, please visit drgpcr.com newsletter. Also, don't forget to share the newsletter with your colleagues. We cannot wait to bring you brand new Dr. GPCR newsletter editions in 2021. Second, we will be taking a short break of the Dr. GPCR podcast in January 2021 as our family will be welcoming a baby boy. But rest assured, we are already working on bringing you brand new episodes starting sometimes in February 2021 with an amazing lineup of guests. Also, stay tuned for a major announcement regarding the podcast. We're also proud to announce that we are pursuing consulting opportunities in the GPCR field. For help with your R&D project, please visit drgpcr.com consulting or reach out by email at hello at drgpcr.com. And last but not least, we will be closing this first season of the Dr. GPCR podcast with a series of interviews with phenomenal female scientists in the field. We hope you'll enjoy it. So hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Yamina Bershish, founder of Dr. GPCR. Welcome to another episode of uh, the Dr. GPCR podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Masha Neve. She is an associate professor and vice dean of research and development at the Hebrew, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Hi, Masha. Hello. So good to see you and so good to have you here with us. Thank you for doing this and for having me. Of course. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time. I know the time difference is about seven hours between us, and I'm glad we were able to find the time to, uh, to bring this together. So um, you're an associate professor. You're in Jerusalem. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about your career and how did you get into studying GPCRs? So um, I started, I always had this kind of... Um, strange relationship with, you know, chemistry, biology, and other different topics. So when I was um, deciding what to study, I was thinking about psychology, literature, art, and maybe chemistry. And um, of course, I started chemistry. I'm saying, of course, because I um, I was born in Russia. So the Soviet upbringing is very clear about, you know, you study exact sciences and that's it. <laughs> so I had many ideas of what to do, but I, I, um, I went with chemistry and um, I loved it. But I also wanted to do something that's good for, you know, like something that developing therapies, uh, new drugs, helping people, doing something good. Um, but somehow I got... Um, hooked up on a, on a theoretical chemistry topics. Um, and I actually went for a direct PhD in theoretical chemistry, but always having in mind that at some point I'll, I'll get to the, to the biological question, which eventually happened. Wow. And um, so did you already know at, at a young age that you wanted to be, um, what you, did you have an idea on what you wanted to be at a young age or this happened once you, you knew that you must, you needed to do something, uh, something tangible, something with numbers and, and formulas. Um, it's interesting. I think um, so. My father is a professor of physics, and my grandfather was a professor of like applied math. Um, so I think I I kind of knew that I want to be a professor. Then at, during some 
stages of my studies, I was actually not so sure. So actually what happened when finishing my PhD, um, uh, there were a lot of startup, uh, biotech startup companies um, in Israel. And I uh, actually, and, and because I wanted to get into biology, actually right after my PhD, I went to work for a startup biotech company working on kinases. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I got into actually, you know, designing drugs, which I, I always had in mind, uh, into biology and into all this kind of, you know, excitement and euphoria of making something new and doing something um, that has the hope of, of, you know, helping people very fast. And um, that was where I actually did my switch into biology. And after that, but th there was a startup. So, you know, you have the highs and the lows and and, and, and seems to work. And then uh, all the market went down. And anyway, so at the, um, uh, after two, three years there, um, I actually decided um, to go for a postdoc. And that's, uh, I went um, to Harold Weinstein's lab at Well Medical College of Cornell. And that, that's where I got into GPCR. So I did not have, I actually was, um, so the steps from chemistry were going from chemistry into peptides, first of all, which often happens to a chemist because it's like the smallest, you know, it's, um, the smallest protein you can think that still looks like. So, um, so it was peptides uh, that could inhibit kinases in the biotech I worked for, and then peptides um, or the the um, C-terminal part of of GPCRs that interact with PDZ domains. Mm -hmm which I studied in uh, her else lab. And of course there in his lab, I also got into GPCRs more generally, like into, into the big, beautiful um, architecture of GPCRs. Wow, so you went from a PhD in chemistry to a biotech working on peptides. And it's true when you think about you know, biology, the smallest unit that you can think of from protein is a peptide. And then you went to do a postdoc, and that's when you got into more into the, G the GPCRs in general. Where did you complete your PhD? And that was also the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Okay. So, yeah. You still, you still um, had the, the opportunity to, you know, work, work at the university, do a PhD, and then uh, that's great. Well, actually, you said in Jerusalem, but actually the faculty where I am working now, it's part, it is one of the faculties of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but actually it's located in a different city in Rehovot. Oh. So I'm not like in the same, same place where I was before. It's a different city, but it's still the same university, which I love. So it's, um, it's all good. That's awesome. So the university has different campuses. That's great. That's yeah, it's a challenge too, by the way, to have different, you know, um, it, they have dispersed, but yeah, but that's that's what we have. We have um, four campuses. Yeah. Wow, all in different cities. No, so um, the the um, human, humanities is one campus in Jerusalem. Then the medical school is a different campus in Jerusalem, and then the exact sciences and math, where I did my all my studies, most of my studies in yet another third campus in Jerusalem and the fourth one is in Rehovot where um, I work now. Wow. So, yeah. uh, wow, that is awesome. And um, so you mentioned that you, you went for a postdoc and that's when you got into the world of GPCRs. Uh, was there any particular moment when you said to yourself, well, I have to work on this. This is so cool. 
Um, it, during my postdoc, I guess, um, well, I mean, what happened is that um, the really exciting time was uh, that the structure started to come out, mm -hmm. right? So I did my, I started my PhD in 2003. And then when, when I got actually my position back at the Hebrew University, my independent position, and I had to, to choose the topic that will be like really my main topic for my lab, um, that's when I said, wow, the GPCRs, that they are amazing. And now there are structures that are coming out. And that was really, you know, the time that I knew that this is the topic I will want to stick with. Even though, even before the structures, they were <laughs> great. But at this point, it was really um, uh, not giving up on that. Um, and then uh, another interesting thing that happened to me is that I... Um, the department where I work is the Institute of um, Biochemistry, Food and Nutrition. So I had also to pick a topic that would be relevant for, um, you know, for, for where I am, for my environment and uh, the, the other PIs that work with me. Um, and there I really had, I, I think I made a really good decision to choose the taste GPCRs. So I decided on GPCRs and then there were different options because of course they're involved, you know, in, in metabolism and a lot of different things. But um, I think I chose it because uh, there is a professor emeritus in the department who worked on taste before and I thought, okay, it would be nice to, you know, to have someone who is in the field. And, and, and this is amazing. And that's, I often say to uh, people who, um, you know, when we when new PIs join um, the faculty, um, they have to choose and and what what to focus on. And I often tell them that I felt that the um, maybe limitation or the fact that I had to choose a topic that would have a specific flavor, a specific um, actually was was good for me because that kind of made for me a niche which would be, you know, different from what uh, my postdoc lab was doing or from other people are doing be because of this, like, special situation. So actually, I think there is an advantage in, in, in having something like that. And yeah, so. Definitely. And taste receptors. I mean, I think we need to study them more. We don't know nearly enough about taste receptors. So not only you chose a great topic, which fit with, with, the, uh, with the institute that you were at, but also it's a topic that needs, definitely needs more research. So tell us about uh, taste receptors. Do you have a favorite taste receptor? What do they do? Okay, so I have, um, so first of all, I started from bitter taste. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think often talking about taste, you kind of always compare it to smell. So uh, smell the olfactory receptors are also GPCRs, also very, very interesting. But the, the, one of the differences is that, first of all, there are many more of them. There are like for humans, like 400 different olfactory GPCRs and ma many more people working on them also. Um, but one of the questions, uh, you know, being a chemist and coming from this perspective, so one of the questions uh, for bitter taste was for me similar to also to some of the questions in olfaction which is the situation where you have many subtypes of the receptors that you have 
and also many ligands and how they, you know, which ligand goes with which receptor and, and it's not one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and does it mean anything that one ligand has many receptors and one receptor has many ligands and how do they do it mechanistically? Like how is it possible to actually, um, uh, to fit so many ligands into the same receptor? So the bitter taste, um, humans have 25, different subtypes of, uh, of these GPCRs. And so um, it's a little easier, I guess, than the olfaction, which is really huge. Um, but also this, this question uh, was there. So I started really from that. And uh, um, we started also, you know, because I was a newcomer to the field, I would like, I would read papers and a paper would say, there are thousands of bitter molecules and then the paper continues. And then I was like, okay, there are thousands of bitter molecules, but what, like, what are they? And so we first of all started from setting up the bitter DB, the database of bitter compounds. Um, and then we started looking into how, um, in, into the associations, which ligands go with which receptors and whether their particular um, properties of the binding site which is a predicted binding site based on the homology model, but anyway, of the binding site of the bitter taste receptor that would help predict or understand why, why some of these bitter taste receptors have many ligands, others have few, some are promiscuous, others are more specific, and still others are even orphan, and so there's still no, um, no ligand for them. Um, and, and by the way, when we say orphan, actually may, maybe more of them are orphan, orphan in the sense that um, um, the bitter, bitter taste receptors and also other taste receptors are not only expressed on the tongue, they're expressed in different tissues in the body. So even though we know some ligands that are relevant to food or relevant to you know, things coming from outside the body, it may very well be that in addition to that, there are some endogenous ligands for bitter taste receptors in, in the body that we still don't know. So maybe they're orphaned in that sense that we still don't know the endogenous um, ligands. So, um, so I like... I like the family. I like that it's a family that we need to understand what's going on and uh, we need to, um, so now we have a really cool project of um, uh, matchmaking. So um, we're developing uh, with uh, colleagues, the data science at the Hebrew University, we're developing um, like a recommendation system where you have, um, you know, like different receptors and different ligands, and you know already some associations, and you know the properties of the ligands and of the receptors. And now we want to be able to uh, suggest for any new ligand which of the receptors are suitable for them. So, like you suggest a movie for a customer based on what you know about what similar customers liked, and so on. Um, <laughs> Previous so <we> reviews. <laughs> sorry on previous reviews <laughs> yeah exactly previous reviews of this one and also yes. like what he looks who is his friend you know who he went to school with and stuff like that so um so so the family aspect of this is something that i really like but if we are looking at like a single receptor my favorite one i think i would um choose the t2r14 this is one of the more promiscuous ones with many um many uh, known ligands um, and we've been working on this for a while because we want to 
both we want to know what else can um, activate it, we want to be able to inhibit it, and we want to be able to have very good ligands because eventually we would like to solve also experimental structures. And for that, you have to have uh, really um, high affinity ligands to stabilize the receptors. Yes. So, um, that, that's that's really great. So for for bitter taste receptors, uh, you said that they're not only expressed on the tongue. Um, do we know anything about the pattern of expression in the body? And also, my next question would be: Are these receptors expressed one one receptor per cell, or multiple receptors in the same cell? Okay, cool. Great questions. So first of all, um, for the bitter taste receptors, they're expressed in upper um, airways. Actually, they were su suggested as uh, new uh, uh, targets for asthma. Um, they are also expressed, but they're also expressed like in the heart. Um, some very interesting involvement is in, um, in cancerous tissues. So it seems that sometimes uh, uh, there even might be a relation between uh, being se um, sensitivity towards uh, drugs, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the you know levels of expression of these receptors in the in the cancerous cells, which could be related to um, perhaps their roles as you know identifying and helping um, activating. Um, Pumps of pumping drugs out. So there, there, there. Uh, these um, are some of their interesting roles. Um, and of course, in the gut, they're also expressed in the gut. So I mean, very, very interesting. So regarding how they expressed in one cell. So in the tongue, in taste receptor cells. Um, so the taste receptor cells either express bitter or sweet or umami like the yep. receptor or um, or the channels for sour and salty so they don't mix in one taste cell however you can have different subtypes like of bitter they can be expressed in the same taste cell mm -hmm. and this opens you know a whole issue of the fact that they expressed in the same taste cell um, kind of led to the notion bitter is bitter is bitter it doesn't matter which bitter taste receptor, they can be together. So, you know, bitter, that's it. That, that's like what they do. This is one school of thought. The other school of thought says, no, <laughs> okay, they're different. And maybe, um, you know, maybe in the test, uh, taste cells, they, it's not so important exactly which kind of uh, bitter taste receptor you activate, but they have other roles in other tissues. And in the other tissues, there are different expressions of different subtypes. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm also, I don't, I think they, they do, like, I think there are nuances and there are differences, uh, at least in some of their roles between the different subtypes. Yeah, the, when you mentioned that you can have different uh, subtypes of bitter receptors in the same cell, the first thought that I had in mind is maybe there is a scale of bitterness and you can detect it or the cells at least detect it depending on what subtypes can maybe co-expressed or who knows. There is much more to do definitely. on. There is a lot to do definitely, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that um, these receptors are expressed, uh, you know, in cancer cells, they can be expressed in the heart. It reminds me of a conversation I recently had with Antonella DiPizio, who was, who was in your lab, and we're talking about smell receptors, which is why the question of one receptor, one cell came up. Um, and so they're also expressed in the gut. 
um, what would be the physiological role of a taste receptor expressed in the gut? What would it do? Well, this actually, this part of it is known because they, they are related to gut motility. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's like, you know, it's like one whole system that has to, you taste it, it makes, announces what's going to happen. Then there is, so there is, yeah. So they do have functional roles um, in the gut related also to secretions of uh, hormones. So it's it's a feedback loop. It's mm-hmm. not all cr- clear, but they definitely have physiological um roles as well um so um i just want to say that my new new favorite receptor <laughs> is actually the sweet taste receptor uh which is also gpcr uh but this is family cgpcr so they're um to the heterodimer yeah um and um so i started I mean, this is really, really cool as well because, uh, of course, it has very, you know, applied things to do with it because you want to uh, think about new sweeteners or even better sweetness um, enhancers, which would like make you feel the same sugar, but feeling it sweeter and then you don't need to to have so much. Um, But um, one of the first projects that we did with the sweet taste receptor is actually uh, regarding the sweet taste of deuterated water, of heavy water. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, uh, Pavel Jungwirth, he's a professor in in the Czech Republic and he's a friend from the time that I was still in chemistry and PhD. And we met a few years ago and he told me that the uh, you know, deuterated uh, water is being used uh, in NMR uh, experiments, and and uh, so NMR people kind of tend to, to sometimes taste it. <laughs> okay. And, but and there was, I mean, there was a um, a paper from the from the thirties, nineteen thirties, where Yuri tasted it and said that it is not sweet. But since then, people were like tasting it here and there. Um, so Pavel told me they're interested in that. And then since then, we actually started um, working with this systematically and we ran uh, systematic sensory experiments on um, on the taste of deuterated water. And we showed that indeed it is sweet, sweeter than regular water. And we were able to show that you, you uh, need to have um, the heterodimer uh, sweet taste receptor in order to elicit response in hex cells. Um, so we do, and, and lactisol, which is an inhibitor of the sweet taste receptor, inhibits the sweet taste of deuterated water. So um, this is really, this is like really strange because it's such a small change um, and you get this effect. So we still, so we know that the sweet taste receptor is involved um, and how exactly, what exactly it is doing, this is ongoing. Wow, it's it's uh, you're you're in the taste, definitely in the taste world, deeply immersed in bitter and, and and sweetness. But who would have thought that, you know, such a little change in the water, you would you would make the body would make that difference, uh, yeah, in, in yeah. sweetness. Yeah, definitely. And I think with when it comes to sweets, it's so interesting because if you eat sweets on a regular basis, at some point you get kind of desensitized, so you have the tendency of eating more and more and more. But then when you cut the sweets, which is hard to do, <laughs> I'm sure everybody can relate to that. And then you come back and you eat something very sweet. It, it kind of hits you. You're like, oh my God, I couldn't taste this sweetness before. 
So I think there is a lot of a lot of nuances uh, when it comes to to sweetness as well. Wow! And do we know anything about uh, the the involvement of these uh, sweet these these sweet tasting receptors in any pathological uh, disease in any any diseases or uh, what what do they do other than helping us taste sweet? So they're they're also expressed in different tissues, um, and so their involvement is also um, you know in relation to diabetes still still being studied. Mm-hmm. But one one big thing that happened actually in the last months, of course, is this issue <laughs> with uh, with COVID nineteen. Yeah. So right. So. Um, Approximately in March, uh, reports started coming out about uh, smell being um, impaired in COVID-19. And I was really, I was not going to work on COVID. I, di- I didn't want to get into that because I feel, you know, I never worked on viruses. I don't know. I, but then there was this report about taste as well. And I'm like, all right, if it's taste, I mean, what can I do? I have to, <laughs> I have to get into it. Um, and so what happened is actually one really interesting, amazing experience for, for me, which is that like from a couple of tweets from people who were interested in that, we got into ma- mails, emails, then into Slack, and then very fast there was this huge GCCR community, the Chemosensory um, Consortium community, with which we've, I've been working for several months now to trying to really understand what's going on with the smell and taste in COVID-19. So because, you know, of the interest of my interest in taste, so we did ask the, uh, the, the participants that we surveyed about their chemosensory losses during COVID-19. So we wanted to ask about specific tastes, like sweet, um, you know, bitter in particular, each one separately for two reasons. One, we thought that, not we thought, it's known that when, you know, when the, the we actually confuse taste and smell together. So it's kind of difficult to differentiate what is what, because together you have an integration of the senses, you have the flavor. Um, And so the first tendency when people said the taste is impaired, that people would say, yeah, of course, your nose is blocked. You can't smell, you can't taste, you know, that's it. So we really wanted to see whether um, reaction to non-volatile taste compounds individuals ones uh, is also impaired um, so we found that it is and then on the other hand we also found uh, and this is a paper that just came out yesterday on on a med archive in fact with the gccr that even though both of these senses are impaired strongly impaired in many uh, or like 60 plus percent of of symptomatic um, COVID-19 patients. Um, If you want to to be able to predict if a person has COVID-19 based on the symptoms, it actually turns out that the the, um, quantitative smell change, so how much of your smell you're lost, uh, is the best predictor. And taste is not as good yeah. <laughs> predictor. So it is a good predictor, but not as good. So, so that was funny because I really just got into it because of the taste, but it turns out that, well, it turns out that first of all, all the taste modalities usually in COVID-19 patients are impaired together. So it's not either one or the other. 
Isaac together. So that actually is a hint that probably it's not the individual taste cell that that is impaired, but probably um, uh, the, I mean other other components that surround it, uh, and then everything is you know is is impaired together. Um, but yeah, but the smell is the more telling uh, symptom as far as we know so far. Yeah. So if you were to ask which one wins, it'll be the smell and not the taste. In this case, yes. However, there are many people who are um, anosmic or hyposmic or have actually previous olfactory disorders mm -hmm. not related to COVID-19. Okay. And that's where, that's where taste then comes in. And we actually had a really interesting case, um, re case a specific case of a person just like that. So if your smell is already bad, then you have to pay real attention to taste uh, because that can still be impaired even though smell is unchanged or is bad anyway from before. Wow. Still, you know, you, you answered my question before I was able to ask it because I wanted to ask about, you know, how did you get in, involved into studying taste receptors in, in, in the, in the COVID-19 patients and it's how, how interesting it is. The way I see it when, when these patients show these symptoms, it's kind of the whole system gets shut down. And it's not just one taste or one receptor. It's just everything that, is, that gets completely dysregulated. It can be very interesting. The one thought I had is, for example, alteration of taste in pregnancy, where, where the hormones just you know, go overload and sometimes there's things that you cannot eat while pregnant and before you were able to eat that. Can you tell us, do you know anything about that? Um, so first, so actually we had a re interesting story with, yeah, so first of all, it is known, um, it is more common, I think, actually again in smell, that the smell is, uh, can be stronger, so hormone related. Um, I actually am not sure that I know about uh, taste. It's in any ca case more um, rare. Uh, the the um, these disparities, um, but yeah, but so we we just had um, um, a participant who told us that she always she didn't realize that she had problems with her uh, olfaction until she got pregnant, and then she started smelling better, and that's how she understood that before something was. Because she all, you know, she always had some baseline that was like the, her normal, and then when she was pregnant, then she saw what's going on and how it can actually smell stronger. And then subsequently, every time she could smell well, she knew she is pregnant. Actually, <laughs> so no, no so, need. But that's to... not, yeah, that's not a common pregnancy check, right? Usually, <laughs> usually you do, you do something else. Yeah. No, no need for a test. Her her smell to in tell. her case, but usually, yeah, but usually you do have to have a different kind of test. <laughs> yeah, that's that's still uh, still very intriguing. Um, what are there any diseases related to to any issues with taste or or the opposite? Are there any diseases that affect taste other yeah. than than the COVID? Situation? So first of all, a lot of medication. So. I mean, so, okay, first of all, there are neurological diseases that are related to chemosensory uh, and um, especially smell, but also sometimes um, sometimes taste. But uh, what is probably the most like pronounced thing with taste is that you have a lot of medicines that are very bitter. Mm -hmm. This is one thing. 
and I'll come back to this in a second because we just did some work related to that. And then there are some medications and uh, in particular also um, radiation and chemotherapy that, that can uh, impact the ability to taste. Uh, and this is a real concern because patients uh, have a really problem with the with the taste. It tastes re either really disgusting or they can't taste and then they don't have appetite. So it's, it, it's a big uh, problem. Um, and then, as I man mentioned, uh, something related to, to cancer, this is still very, very novel, but there could be uh, issues related not to taste per se, but taste receptors that are expressed, um, uh, you know, like in, in, in cancers and then could, could maybe help uh, understand how to combat, combat base this disease. But one general thing is really, uh, is that many, many um, drugs are very bitter. And you can think about all these like proverbs, you know, if it's bitter, it will not cure you, you know, the bitter pill, bitter. So, um, so we started looking into this from different perspectives. So first of all, in addition to this bitter uh, in a drug thing, and I mean, and in fact, traditional medicines, sometimes, uh, you know, the, um, the traditional uh, shamans and so on, they would they would use the taste to know, you know, what is yeah. what what is uh, a potential of, yeah. drug. But on the other hand, bitterness is also usually um, considered as a, as a marker of toxicity. So, so what, first of all, it's interesting because, of course, there is this relationship between uh, efficacy and toxicity, and and uh, the window where you know it's it's efficacious but still not toxic, and it's all a matter of doses and so on. But what what we did, we first of all actually wanted to know whether it is true that bitterness is a marker of toxicity, and we found that it's not such a great correlation. So you have many bitter molecules that are not toxic, and many toxic molecules that are not bitter. Then we wanted um, to look into into this issue with the bitter drugs, because it turns out this is really interesting, actually. You know, because in in um, drug discovery, computational tools that are being used in drug discovery are so sophisticated, right? You have a structure-based screening and you have toxicology uh, prediction and you have, uh, uh, you know, and of course machine learning now and everything. However, this one aspect is not of, of the taste of the drug is actually not being considered until quite late stages in the development. So when do people look into it? Either when you have already to test the drug against a placebo. Now, if the drug is very bitter and the placebo is not very bitter, that's not, you know, it's not exactly the same. So actually when getting to placebo, you have to know if you have to like correct for the, for yeah. the taste of the drug, it's one thing. But then usually actually what happens is when the drug gets already to the market, and then it turns out it's so bad that it can be, you know, an amazing drug, but it will not be taken. Especially, the problem is especially with pediatric patients, geriatric patients, and mental patients where, like, swallowing is could be a problem, as, as, you know, swallowing the big pills that are coated. Um, and so actually now, actually, the FDA uh, made it recently a requirement that the taste uh, 
uh, is, is reported. So like now it because becomes something to take into account. Um, so how is it taken into account again now? So there are sometimes animal studies uh, with rodents that they they drink less of the of the compound of the water containing compound that is bitter. But what we have done is we have now developed uh, a computational so a machine learning um, a predictor which we trained on intensely bitter compounds and the ones that are not intensely bitter. And so now we can actually look at the structure and predict if it's going to be intensely bitter. And this is um, this actually has the potential of saving a lot of, of time because you know this is a very fast tool so you can take a huge library in the very early stages of development and already mark you know this one is going to be bitter now oh very bitter now i don't want to say get rid of them no because i think actually many of them can be very good because we know that bitterness can, but we can flag them and we can say okay this one might have issues so let's you know like keep in mind and um and think about formulations and think about testing so um yeah so this is one aspect you know of of actually any drug for any disease which you have to swallow that you have to think about bitterness and then of course like the other part of it is uh because we have bitter taste receptors in you know in the intestinal tract or, or in different tissues actually probably some of the drugs that we are already taking for another um, target mm -hmm. some of them might be already having an effect of, on the bitter taste receptors in our body and maybe part of their effects already have to do with that even though that was not the purpose but yeah, yeah. wow so um you de definitely there is there's potential and a lot of work to be done to to a better understand how taste receptors and bitter taste receptors actually work. And I haven't thought about the formulation, but you're right. Whenever you take a drug that is really bitter, you you and it and it's a huge pill. It is a problem, and you want to just you know swallow it as soon as possible because it, it does leave that aftertaste, which can be a problem when with a child or with with, a, with someone. Yeah, and when I was a young child, actually, I had I had really huge problems swallowing. I mean it. It was difficult for me, so I, I can yeah. really relate to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I, th I think I remember times when you know the pills were crushed so that you can swallow them better. But then, then you release the whole taste of it, and it's even worse. That right, exactly. Or if you're <laughs> trying to chew, if you can, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So it's it's not ideal, but that's great. So you have this this kind of a machine learning tool that in the beginning already tells you, gives you a kind of a scale of, of bitterness that can be taken into account on whenever you have these, um, these drugs or these compounds that are being used. Are there any ways of, for example, you're developing uh, a drug and they know that it's extremely bitter. Are there any ways of making it less bitter, but still keeping the activity or making, make it sweet or, or something like that? Yeah, so there are there are different approaches, of course, of um, like cyclodextrin encapsulations. Um, there are different approaches. Um, uh, there's still, you know, there's still need for more for additional ones, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a big um, topic of study actually uh, of how to like 
if you basically you're saying okay so you found out it's going to be extremely bitter what is the next step exactly. so so from my point i mean there are different approaches many like physical physical uh, mechanistic approaches but from our point of view uh what we are trying to do is um develop antagonists for bitter taste receptors because if this is not the target that we are targeting if it's just an off target maybe we can do something uh, that would you know not activate them or or inhibit them um this is an interesting thing about bitter taste gpcrs um it's it's more difficult to find antagonists for them than to find agonists for them. So we've been looking for agonists for a while and it is, I mean, for ligands for a while, and we are very successful in finding new agonists. And for antagonists, we have successes, but we, you know, this is what we are trying to work on. Is it because people have been, in the from the beginning, more focused on finding agonists, so they didn't kind of, take the time to look for, or is it a special um, property of, of, of taste receptors? I think it's a property of these receptors. They are more prone to getting activated. They don't have, there are particular sub, subgroup of family AGPCRs. They're missing some of the conserved motifs some of the disulfid bridges, I mean, they're not exactly like all the other GPCRs. And I think what uh, it is something to do with their architecture um, that um, that makes them, you know, um, easy. it's easier to activate them. Interesting, interesting. Well, when you think about it, since it's a taste receptor, when, when we just consider the, the tongue, at that point, evolutionarily speaking, you really want to detect that bitterness taste. So you really want to make sure that you activate it before you eat that fruit that might kill you. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. In terms of this physiological role, it makes a lot of sense that that's what it should be doing. Yeah, like sensing and going, oh, yeah, yeah, there is something. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe I shouldn't be eating, eating this. Yeah. Um, uh, what I want, I mean, we've talked about this. And the question, the answer to my question, this, this question is always yes, uh, but I was hoping you can elaborate. So do you think GPCRs and taste GPCRs could be a good drug targets in, in the context that we, we spoke about? Um, the bitter taste, I, I believe, yes. I believe that they will, they will turn out as, as drug targets. Uh, the others... Maybe also, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that the bitter taste, yeah, I, I think so. So you had mentioned that there might be uh, an application in asthma for the bitter taste. Were there any other applications that you can think of as, as drug targets for the bitter taste receptors? Um, well, cancer as well, you were mentioning that sometimes the cancer cells also express. The cancer, yeah, this, the, the, the cancer is still not, not like a mainstream thing. This is... Um, um, there are some works from uh, Matt Gaida from Germany that he showed this, uh, you know, difference in in uh, pancreatic cancer um, in in patients who express or do not express uh, these receptors. So, um, so I'm just mentioning it because we are collaborating with him, and I think it's a very very interesting and, and um, promising um, direction, but it's very novel. It's not like a main thing that everybody kind of um, agrees on. Um, I think also, um, yeah, I would say that asthma probably is the most advanced, like the first application that, that was suggested. Um, um, but because of their expression, 
actually, in fact, I think also heart or like cardiology related um, issues might come come up as well because they're also involved in. Um, um, I'm forgetting now how it's called, but you know, like a, a heart uh, regulation of uh, heartbeat. heart beating, I think. Yeah. So it's, it, but it's, it, there is still work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, we were looking for cardiac arrhythmia. Um, right. It's called ionopathy. I think. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure, it, but okay. it's, uh, it, it has involvement. It was shown in my, my hearts and now, but it's not yet, you know, Probably it is not the you know like the number one next uh, target, except mm -hmm. maybe for for asthma it's it's been debated uh, much much more than than other things. Wow, yeah, I can see a lot of applications, not only in in disease areas but also in you know food, as you were mentioning, um, to to develop molecules that taste sweet but you don't need to eat the entire bag. Yeah. <laughs> In food, though, it's interesting because in food, um, we kind of have this tendency of, you know, getting rid of the bitter. And of course, sweet is very attractive. And, and, and um, but um, I think there is some work to be done in terms of like nutrition and set of mind uh, of kind of accepting bitterness in a, in a, in a in a more open way than is usually done in the western in, you know in the western um diet because first of all in eastern diets they 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 they're uh the way they treat bitterness is different it's, we have this like you accept maybe for beer and coffee everything else you know is not but in actually bitter compounds first of all we found that they are not necessarily toxic right i mean there are some families but not usually and there are a lot of very healthy compounds that have slight bitter taste so actually in a way um and this is uh, something my, my colleague angela vasoli is is really promoting is like the um um bitter for better health so no, let's not let's not think about bitter something like just to get rid of or yeah. to to try to put like a lot of sugar on top of it not to feel yeah. it and rather instead try to um to get used to it and to accept it as something that is actually not not bad um, um and that that would actually be a healthier diet for us if we accept it and <laughs> So let's let's all accept bitter bitter taste. Um, <laughs> it's not bitterness, think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But of course, I mean, can you think of um, of any compounds or of any any foods that are that are bitter but still are healthy? Now you mentioned yeah, coffee and beer, but um, what so are a lot of flavonoids, uh, a lot of uh, you know um, even uh, caffeine and other compounds in coffee, uh, hop humulons from beer. Um, are bitter and, and uh, healthy, um, but but really flavonoids from like from citrus fruits, from um, from other fruits, um, compounds from tea that that are bitter, but also antioxidants. Uh, it's um, it's really a diverse diverse group of compounds that has a lot of good in them. <laughs> Yeah, so we shouldn't be afraid of exploring um, the bitter bitter tastes. They can be they can be healthy, which I think yeah. it's. Uh, I think the more varied you can you can think of your nutrition, 
and then then you get more and what well, more nutrients in there more vegetables more and and that's 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 the goal of of getting all those good nutrients in and not stick to the uh, to the sugary sugary exactly thing. exactly there are really beautiful works of julie manella and others where they're trying to um, get very young children used to the both the variety and also you know the particular tastes um, and so in some cases, there were even works trying to do it through through mother's diet while while she's still pregnant, and then breastfeeding, to um, to really because early exposure and repetitive exposure to uh, to flavors has a major effect on what is later on accepted and you know liked. Oh, I I agree, I agree, and I think that's a whole other topic for another podcast. But I think I think that's also very important from a very you know from from being from the pregnancy to, to make sure that you, you choose different foods and then also give that choice. And I think also when you look at it, so I think you, you eat with, with your nose, you eat with your, with your tongue and you taste, but also you eat with your eyes. So having that diversity in color can also be a very, very appealing to everyone when you look at a different food. This is of course absolutely true, but I just have to mention just one very cool collaboration that we recently had with um, Craig Montel, where we, he showed, and um, actually it was together with, with uh, Antonella when she was still in the lab, that um, the opsin receptor in Drosophila is actually also a bitter taste receptor in the sense that it can be activated by bitter compounds. That is so cool. he, this is a really, yeah, it's really cool work where, you know, maybe kind of tells you even the origins, like maybe maybe the visual receptors originally or or very very early on in in evolution were in fact um, chemical receptors for some chemicals and later on you know with the retinol that could be activated by light then it became a vision receptor so anyway so yeah so i know you meant something else that you see and it affects you which is completely true but in this particular case also uh there is this you know combination on the on the chemical or the receptor level That's, that is so cool so yeah with, with the drosophila you also can again taste with your eyes kind <laughs> of, which is amazing so there is a lot of work to be done in the field there's many applications to studying taste receptors and bitter taste receptors as well what would be your advice to to junior scientists who wanted to contribute in the field and wanted to better understand uh these fascinating gpcrs So I, I actually, first of all, I think my advice to scientists is to do something that I have done recently, but I think now should everybody should do it is go on Twitter, <laughs> okay? Because the amount of information, of opportunities, of um, the speed with which you get exposed to to results, and also a feeling that you get from like different labs and what that what are the people behind uh, the science and what they care about, um, the, the inclusiveness and diversity, and, and there are other um, values that you will kind of see through from what they're tweeting. Um, so it's really amazing. So for me, from Twitter, I got to, uh, to, to establish and to know the amazing people in the GCCR consortium. Uh, it also helped us establish uh, GPCR Ladies website, which is uh, um, a um, website which lists the um, 
uh, women working in the GP, uh, GPCR field. Uh, so if uh, women listening and wanting to be, you know, uh, there is a there is a link where you can put your um, data. So we added um, and many other things good things came from me on Twitter, even though it's difficult because you can see like everybody's so active and, and so many things are going on. It, it, it's also a challenge in its own, but nevertheless, I think it's worth the, it's worth the time um, to follow, you know, pe in, people you, you appreciate in the field and to, to um, get exposed to the numerous free resources and, and virtual conferences and so many things that are now going on. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, when when I started this the the podcast and started working on Doctor GPCR, one of my first questions was, "Where are the GPCR folks? Where is everybody?" And it turns out everybody is on Twitter. And uh, in spite of of the whole COVID pan pandemic that we're going through, there is such an enormous amount of activity in the field that's been going on and it's so refreshing to see that people are still continuing to work and there's papers coming out. Um, we have a monthly newsletter that comes out so uh, people can subscribe to it, drgpcr.com slash newsletter. And we compiled last month only 10 papers on only quote unquote 10 papers on structure. But I think at the end of the month we had about 60 publications that were in some way related to GPCRs. Most of them had a focus on a specific family or a specific receptor, which I think is phenomenal to be able to just, you know, scroll through those and, and kind of pick, cherry pick what you're interested in, but also look at articles that you normally wouldn't look for uh, or look at. Just having that diversity, I think, is just, just phenomenal. Definitely. I agree. And I actually, I don't know if we have time, but I actually wanted to ask you a question. Is yes. it, can, we, can we do yes, it? Or of course. <laughs> So I was really impressed by how you went. I don't know, like from there was no podcast and now it's like, wow. And so I wanted to ask you whether like, is it something, how did you decide to do it? And how do you learn to do it? Like, how did it happen? So um, it happened sometimes in February where I was listening to a podcast about consulting called Consulting Success. And uh, they're Canadians as well. So, um, and they were talking about how to kind of establish yourself in the field and how to create credibility. And a couple of years ago, the answer to that was write a blog. And although I do enjoy scientific writing, I felt like it wasn't, it wasn't up to date. It, it's 2020, come on. Uh, and I figured, you know what, let's, let's just talk to people and, and create a podcast. And I knew nothing about how to create a podcast back in February. Uh, but I did what you'd call a market research. I did uh, look, talk to people who, who might be coming on the podcast. And that's, that's how it went. And I really very much enjoyed it. I enjoy talking to, to people, people like you. Uh, we're opening up the floor to trainees, uh, to postdocs and PhD students, uh, obviously with a different set of questions. But the idea is to also promote all of us who work on GPCR. So that's, that's how it, it came up. That's very cool. Yeah, thank you. And it's been a great adventure so far. And it allowed me to talk to people from all around the world, which I think that's kind of the, uh, the diversity that we want to have in the field. Uh, you know, independently on where you are, what your time zone is, if you have an interest in the field, then we should all belong under the same umbrella. Absolutely. Super, super. So my last question to you, Masha, is when you have job openings uh, in, in your group, 
where do you usually advertise? And I wanted also to let you know that we do have a career page. There's drgpcr.com slash career, where we're also gathering all of the GPCR related job postings independently, whether they're postdoc or a PhD or even uh, industry uh, jobs. Thank you. So, um, okay. So for me, I think, how do I do it? So if somebody wants to work with me, so probably Twitter is a good place to look. Then um, I advertised um, through costs uh, that I belong to. So like listen and now it's earnest. Yeah. Um, that I know some people through yeah. earnest are coming also to talk here. Um, and then um, I guess this would be the main, uh, the main um, places I would advertise. Um, now there is also this um, job archive repository, which I have not used. It's like, you know, like med archive, bio archive, there yeah. is job archive. Um, it seems, so I see people advertising there and then putting, and then showing on Twitter what they advertise. So that seems to be like something to look into. But definitely um, I will look also into, uh, um, into your um, uh, advertisement now. Um, Right now, my lab is pretty big, so I'm I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with students, but definitely in the in the future, or if people come with their own funding, that's perfect, and we're open. That is awesome. That is amazing. Um, there is one last thing I wanted to say, but it kind of uh, fleeting. Oh yes, yeah, so we were talking about about Ernest, and uh, I think it's a great opportunity, you know, for for all of us in the US or you know anywhere in the world and with the European uh, team as well to come and get together and kind of share all of these resources. So I think it's a, it's a good time to be working together and not having to travel or not being able to travel also has its advantages. Absolutely, yeah. I just had an idea that, okay, I'll tell you after we close. <laughs> <My idea. laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, we, we are at the end of our, of our chat. Thank you so much, Masha, again for, uh, for your time and um, you. talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank our guest, Atila Forrest, Jin Chong, and Shivani Sashdev. Music by Rosa Bershish. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. We're always excited to hear from you. Visit us at drgpcr.com or send us a note at hello at drgpcr.com. I also wanted to wish you happy holidays and a very happy new year. I'd like to thank this year's guests and thank you for being such a wonderful audience. Thank you again for the privilege of your time and until next time, stay safe. <music>